G'day, welcome to Radio Notes, where those in music talk life, those in life chat music and more. Roxanne Nisbet of Graphician, our feature guest. We'll hear from them in extended form in just a moment. First, in the box, Nana Nore is the Torres Strait Mirror Mirror language translated to Let's Go to the Reef. It is also the title of a new track from Busby Maru from the new album soon to be released, The Great Divide. Jeremy from the duo recently sat on the panel of the inaugural First Nations Summit on Climate Change. The pair also about to post-album release head on a national tour of Australia. Speaking of duos, brother and sister, Janina's Hurt Me Like Hell has seen the light of day. Penned in a barley home while finished in Sydney, the tune then was taken to Nashville to be finished as a full song. From Sony, news of imperfections. Celine Dion's single from a release, Courage. Warner has details of the debut album from the High Women. And out of Melbourne, Australia, I Am That by Militant. An artist that will be touring with the Pierce Brothers across Europe previously supported Tones and I and Tash Salter. One more for this episode. Thaya, moniker for singer and songwriter Thea Fitzgerald, who has their debut EP Building Blocks out now that builds on their live experiences at Summerfest and notable jazz festival stages too. Let's now head to our feature guest. Roxanne Nesbitt is an interdisciplinary artist who also makes symbiotic instruments and the creative mind behind the music output called Graftishen, who recently released an album called Mandarins, which is also their first available on vinyl. They also compose for parasite-like acoustic instruments that are played in and around traditional instruments. From Vancouver, Nesbitt joined Radio Notes for a chat. Thanks very much for joining Radio Notes. Yeah, hi. Thanks for having me. What was the kernel, the seed that got you interested in music? I started music like when I was like 13 or 14. I started playing upright bass. Um, And before that, I had sang in choir and kind of always enjoyed sound. But when I started bass, I felt really hungry, I guess, for uh, musical knowledge. And I had started to write songs as like a preteen and so that's always been part of my my kind of art practice and then I guess I kind of diverged from that for many years and studied architecture but I felt like I couldn't let go of music so I actually ended up like focusing my architecture studies toward like acoustics and instrument design. You basically use the study to come back to where the passion was? Yeah. You used your study for the passion? I design acoustic instruments now as well. Studying design has really allowed me to be able to communicate through drawing and be able to make kind of sounding objects at a higher level, I think, than I would have been able to if I had only studied music. What kind of instruments are we talking about there? Mm -hmm. Uh, So I design ceramic percussion instruments that are like kind of bells and curved bars and different shapes that are also used for prepared piano. And I've designed some kind of tuned drumsticks and then some projects that I wouldn't really call instruments, but they take a lot from instrument design that, and then they end up being like sound installations or kind of like interactive art pieces. 
I guess from my point of view, there, there's that link between architecture that you're studying and trying to get it back to some sort of on the page. How do you get mm-hmm. from A to B? How do I get from, from being on the page to like a, a built thing? Yeah. That's uh, one of the reasons I was really drawn to clay because you can be so kind of like quick and dirty with how you form something. It's quite easy to go from a sketch to a built thing, just forming with your hands. Whereas if I was working with metal or stone or kind of a a material that's harder to manipulate, that it would take a lot more planning to just to test ideas. And when I'm talking about the landscape, I'm also thinking about the placement of those instruments as well, because there is that Mm -hmm. composition element of it. For those that haven't seen it, how would you explain what you've called before the uh, parasitic light nature of your instruments. Mm -hmm. The ceramic instruments that I design are placed on the strings of a grand piano and then they can be played as their own instruments from that position, but they also can be used to distort the sound of the piano by like pushing or sliding onto the strings. And then there's kind of a reaction with the nodes of the, piano strings heading to the uh, south of france soon and then through to berlin Mm -hmm. and various other european destinations Mm -hmm. i'm starting off by doing uh, a ceramics class in slip casting with a woman named sasha wardell in the south of france and so that's just a study that i couldn't find in canada i've been looking for several years and kind of short of taking an MFA in ceramics. I couldn't find a class. So I'm traveling for that class. And then I'm going to be working out of a space called Bauschhund in Berlin, which is open to kind of experimentation inside the piano, uh, which is also like hard to find in different residency spaces. And then from there, I'll be going to the Ceramic Work Center, Oistvik in the Netherlands. I guess I'm kind of like focusing on my ceramic instruments and composing this year. What was the first ceramic instrument you made? It's kind of an intensive class in Amsterdam in uh, the December of 2016. I was going to be doing a residency in Berlin and I just kind of went a bit early and spent a month studying ceramics in Amsterdam and what was the first instrument that I made? I, I probably made more than one thing in a day. Probably I made, I made some bowls and I made a few pieces on the wheel to start with. Where were you at the time when you threw your first slab of clay? I was in the studio of Addie Blumen, which is in Amsterdam. I sent her an email showing some examples of other instruments that I had made and then she she got quite excited about the project and she kind of took me around her collection of things that she had made and was like striking everything so that we could get a sense of like the the tone of different types of clay and different types of building strategies. How would you describe the importance of movement within your pieces? For the ceramic pieces, movement is very important. I try to design instruments that have some kind of motion on their own so that once the hand leaves they still they still can move they have an option to 
have some kind of like periodic motion or they can be turned and flipped and um, used in like a, a more static way. Could you talk us through gossip study? That piece was, I guess I got a commission from violinist to make a piece for violin and electronics. And so I tried to make a ceramic speaker. So I had this kind of sculptural shape, like a porcelain bowl of some kind that designed to have space for a transducer and then to have different different points where it would sit and rest, but also kind of be easily tipped. So we just put a transducer on it and then I made a soundtrack and I was trying to make a speaker that a performer could interact with in a physical way because I feel often disappointed when I hear pieces with a kind of traditional instrument and electronics. The interaction between both worlds is limited and even if there is some kind of interaction where the computer music is reacting to what the player's doing, it's kind of over the heads of the audience. So I wanted to make something really tactile and something that could be seen by the audience and felt by the player. How do you approach getting that style of sound onto the page as a composer? For that piece, I used a graphic score. I used a combination of kind of traditional notation and graphic scores, I find that you have to approach everything, every project on a case-by-case basis, that there are situations where a graphic score works great because you get to work directly with the players and they're good improvisers or know their style, you trust them. And then there are situations where more notation is better because you can't be there to workshop something one-on-one or the players have like more of a classical training and not aren't as comfortable with improv. As someone who works in the multi-disciplines of art does that help or hinder you in your process of creative output? Um, I think it does both that every so often I have this feeling of like oh what if I just focused on one thing and did a really good job of it and like what if I like I can, I can see the points of projects that aren't getting enough care. And even once, once a project is done, once something is developed enough to share, that's kind of the beginning. And then there's so much other work like booking shows, getting funding, booking tours. There's a lot to do for each project. And so I, I wonder if the projects could be better served if I only kind of did them maybe like one at a time or if I just did less. And often that's a feeling that I have with Graftitian that it's it goes a bit uncared for because there are all these other exciting kind of instrument design and collaborative projects going on. What was the spark for Graftitian? So I wrote my the first Graftitian album that I did when I was still in architecture school. So this is the self-titled in 2014? Yeah. I'd just been working really hard at design, and I had kind of had the idea in my mind that I had quit music and that I was uh, kind of done with it and that it was a, had been a dead end in a way. 
And I felt, but I also just was craving songs. I would find myself like writing songs with, with any kind of like spare moment that I had. And then I, yeah, started to feel like oh, I, I need to share this music, even if it doesn't become something. So I just released a self-made, self-produced album on Bandcamp. And then it did kind of grow and I got more opportunities from that release, continued to, mm. to make more. And Wonder Weave then came out in 2016 and now in 2019 Mandarins has now come out. What's your overview of the thematics of Mandarins and where it sits in the repertoire of the three? I think it's the most mature writing. Lyrically, it's definitely the strongest. And then I've been saying that it's about the ephemerality of love and self. So I guess in a way it's about like maturing and changing as a partner and as a person. It also refers to two hearts, which isn't a Doctor Who reference. Do you believe that, <laughs> do you believe that everyone does have two hearts? No, I don't. But I believe that it's possible to to be kind of pulled in different directions and have like mutual uh, like attractions and mutual kind of desires and and to just want different things at the same time. That's also really common. Does performance help you express that? Yeah, I guess so. I'm a, like a very introverted person, and I a lot a lot of the time I just want to go home and read my book. <laughs> but performance is like very it's performance, so that's a, a point where. I think I get to explore a different side of myself. What are you currently reading? The Science of Percussion Instruments by Thomas Rossing. So in preparation for the residency that I'm doing at the Ceramic Works Centre, I'm going to be focusing on designing bells and making scales through physical transformations, like shapes kind of unfolding. So I'm learning about the science of how bells work. That thread between traditional quote-unquote instruments and those that you're making, how much does one reference the other or do you really want to have a blank canvas when you're making those instruments? It's good to be aware of the history because it, it does help to inspire ideas and to understand how things work, but it's also good to disregard them and to explore without them. Like I can still make a bell without understanding how a bell works, but I might make a better bell if I understand how it works. But I might make a better bell if I don't understand how it works, but I'm just choosing to know as much as I can at this point. But I also made a lot of bells and bowls and like tuned objects without really understanding how like the nodes of a bell work. I noted you did once make 146. Is it closer to a thousand now? I haven't been actively making ceramics because I'm getting ready to move and it is really easy to, <laughs> to, um, to accumulate a lot of work. 
I'm kind of in a research stage getting ready for the work that I'll do at the Ceramic Works Center. I'm like a very curious person, always kind of trying new things. It's interesting, I'm because I'm moving, I'm like getting rid of all a lot of my stuff and I feel like a little bit like I've kind of tried everything. Like I have some silk screening materials to get rid of and some like paints and pastels and power tools and the sewing machine and like I kind of feel like I've tried everything but maybe it's time to to stop trying every every art form and just like focus in on a few things. Are you good at decluttering? Um, I'm not good at decluttering but I'm really enjoying the process right now. What's making that process easier? I guess the threat of having to pay for storage <laughs> in Vancouver is quite expensive. I'm having a hard time getting rid of things that I've made because I feel even my like failed instruments and failed projects kind of represent an idea to me and they sometimes remind me of, of something that I may have forgotten in drawing or not documented well enough. So I think that I'm going to end up getting rid of everything that is like a a product or a tool and that I'm going to just keep the things that I made. Are you much of a photographer? Because I can imagine photography might play a part in just having a visual capsule of what you've Mm -hmm. done. Um, I don't really think of myself as being a photographer, but like all artists are kind of expected to now to be documenting their process and sharing in a way something like Instagram is helpful because it presents like kind of an chronological archive but as an introvert um, push you out of a comfort zone uh yeah <laughs> definitely does i find sharing difficult and i still do it because it gets me more opportunities to share and develop my work. I've just decided that it's worth it, but I am controlled about it. I will like stop when I feel uncomfortable. I will take breaks from my phone. And especially if I feel like it's affecting my mental health. Where's the drive for you to go outside of that element of yourself? I think it's really important to have a practice of talking about your work and kind of sharing it in like a a couple quick sentences so I think that sharing through social media has helped me to get better at even having like a conversation with a stranger about what I do is there a drive to produce the output I guess every so often you have these moments where like someone finds another artist who makes ceramic instruments, for example, and like links me up with them and like these kind of connections that are made that are, I think, valuable and interesting beyond like networking because ideas connect and you connect with other people who are interested in the similar ways of making and doing and that that is worth kind of a stepping out of your comfort zone for. 
When you're making your ceramics as a musician and composer, what are you listening to whilst you're making the ceramics? I often don't listen to music on headphones or in the studio. It depends very much on what kind of studio I'm working in. Like sometimes I take ceramics classes at like a community center. So that's a situation where it's not really appropriate to play a stereo and I wouldn't put in headphones because I want to kind of be present to the other people making and the other kind of sounds in the space. I feel there was a time in my life where I really enjoyed listening to music while I was making other things and now I'm in a, a time in my life where I really enjoy like sitting down and listening to music on its own and then not having it not be like a, a background to another activity. Radio Notes, released first as podcast, can also be heard on radio worldwide. How do you gather your oral experiences? Are, are you a bit of a walker for that connection of music? I do really like to walk and listen. I was a member of the Soundwalk Collective in Vancouver for a couple of years, I think really have time to be involved right now and I'm also like leaving soon but the Soundwell Collective is a group of people in Vancouver who meet regularly and walk together and listen and that practice came out of the study of acoustic ecology that was kind of developed in Vancouver and I think that that work has been influential to my study of architecture and to the way that I listen to buildings when I move through them. And that's also part of the reason that I don't like to wear headphones when I'm working or when I'm walking around. I want to be open to those special moments where you like step on a loose tile or drain lid or something or or someone else does or just like kind of special moments that are happening in the city that that I think you you miss have headphones on. What's one of the most interesting sounds of a building that you've heard? I guess I really like kind of tactile sounds, like sounds that you encounter by like railings, but also whenever there's like a big shift from a narrow space to a very like large reverberant space, the way the the weight of the step changes as you move through a space like that, I think is beautiful and has an effect of bringing you back to yourself. And through your study of architecture, how do you perceive that you could change that landscape? I think I would like to, at some point, design some large-scale sound installations that are architectural in their nature. I've, I've done some smaller pieces uh, with to, like tuned concrete and stone tiles, but they were always temporary installations. I'd like love to make something like that permanent. That was tuned um, concrete did a project in Berlin in 2017 where I tuned aerated concrete tiles by changing the lengths and I made an installation and hired a group of three 
dancers to perform. So that project came out of my architecture thesis, which is kind of about listening to the city and designing spaces that attract the attention of the listener instead of something to ignore and trying to make spaces that help people to celebrate their own movements and to be present in whatever they're doing. And that was a project that stood out to me from my research as being the most feasible. So I got some funding to work on it. And then I did another version last summer of marble and limestone tiles that are smaller and they rock. So they just kind of drop back onto a hard surface when you step on them and resonate that way. If you were to build a city from scratch, what would you include in that landscape for its populace? I don't think I would build a city from scratch. I think that the city needs the development of communities and it needs all these different voices making it to make something like that's shared and that is organic. That when I come into spaces that have been like mass designed by one firm or one designer that they seem quite like quite sterile like I might do a a project in a city but I don't think I would want to design a whole city kind of an aside I do love when cities don't have cars in the center that's like so amazing to just not be in traffic sounds how you like to perform your music. And I guess I'm talking here about the visuals together with the live performance. Mm -hmm. I typically perform with visuals synced to specific samples. So there's some kind of video usually, or lately they've been kind of a combination of moving video and stop motion that's layered. They're synced to a specific sample. I really like performing with, other musicians. Mandarin's features acoustic instrumental soloist on each song. I really like the energy kind of performer of a traditional instrument brings to electronic music. And you've been working with well, Juno award-winning Ben Brown of late as well. Yeah, I've been working with Ben for many years. Uh, he's not on a Mandarin's, but he definitely helped. But um, you guys work on the Y Choir together? So Y Choir plays shows now and then, and we just play improvised songs. And often I use Y Choir as like a, as kind of research for Graftition. I'll bring kind of like unfinished sketches of songs and test them with Y Choir and then take things that I think are working and develop them into to more like thoroughly composed songs. Getting back to the latest record, Mandarins, you've worked with uh, Kim Mortal. Last summer, I saw Kim perform at a festival in BC, and I was really blown away, really impressed uh, by their energy and the way that they communicate in their songs and so I just asked him if they wanted to be on a song and then, and then it, yeah, it's that easy. Currently in conversations with the Roxanne Nisbet, we are talking about the new record with them. What artists are currently inspiring you? 
so I've been listening to Miriam the Believer. I like a band out of Winnipeg called Civi, which is bassoon and an amplified weaving loom and cello, I think. And then I'm kind of getting more into classical music again, listening to newer composers, and I'm starting to be commissioned to write music more, and then spending time like listening to the work of different ensembles and listening in a different way, I guess. So not listening to music that I want to kind of hear on repeat because of these kind of earworms or they're not really songs to get obsessed with, but just listening out of curiosity, being like, what are new composers doing? What are composers my age up to? What did you get from your year in Banff? Studied at the BAM Center a couple times. I was there for th- for three months in 2009, for a month in 2017, and then for another month just this past summer. So I've never actually spent a year there. It's just been kind of shorter, time- focused times of study. This past time, I did a program called Ensemble Evolution that was hosted by the International Contemporary Ensemble out of New York, and they brought in a lot of different composers and players and exciting instrumentalists. So this time I felt like my scope of what new music is was really expanded just by like meeting all these new people and feel like it kind of expanded my sound palette and my world a little bit and then the time before designing and composing for my symbiotic instruments project but I was focusing not really on the ceramics more on on drums so there's kind of another version of the project where I'm designing like bridges and systems of stretching strings over drums the Banff Center let me use their sculpture workshop as well as having a music studio. So I would go cut something up on the bandsaw and then bring it back to my studio and test it out and then maybe take it back and modify it. It was really exciting to have access to both both types of spaces, which is something that's a little bit hard to find unless you kind of have your own studio set up because generally music spaces want to keep the kind of the mess of building, <laughs> like, uh, away from instruments. Who could blame them? Is the long goal to have an instrument that you've named? The goal of instrument design for me is to develop a, a unique sound palette, and so that's kind of an evolving process. How do you see colours? I really love colour. I don't have... Uh, synesthesia or I don't have a a way of I don't have an intuitive way of connecting color and sound I use color in graphic scores but mostly to indicate contrast to say like this texture is different than this texture because we see a different color here but I don't I can't say like oh D sharp is yellow where are you most at peace? In the research phase is like most exciting for me. Reading, drawing, sketching, kind of like developing ideas. But they do need to be, I think, 
be realized, that part is is a bit more it's more stressful, more anxiety inducing, <laughs> more and more rewarding, but more intense when you're still kind of drawing and planning everything's still possible and everything's fair game and that's kind of a safe space for me what ways do you work through that anxiety to get the productivity that you're looking for i guess i just try to get the project done as i've kind of made more work in the last couple years it's been a lot easier because I know that there's a next project and there's another and there's another version of the same project. So it doesn't feel like this is the one one thing that I'm making and it has to be perfect. Like I can kind of see the process, even if a version of a project is being like shown at a gallery or in a concert, I can kind of see a, a larger trajectory unfolding. And so I don't have to put as much pressure on that one kind of engagement with the public. There's like an, another version of the project coming that helps to reduce the pressure for it being perfect or being finished. You mentioned that you currently got a few commissioned works in the works, mm-hmm. contemporary mm-hmm. classical kind. Mm-hmm. Can you give us a little behind-the-curtains look at where you're at at the moment in these early stages of those works? I have one project for a quartet that I feel like I can't talk about because there's no... Fair enough. There's not enough. (laughs) There's not enough um, confirmed kind of details. And then I'm working on a piece for a group based out of Den Haag that will be premiered in the fall of 2020 in Vancouver. And it's for Ensemble Modelo 62. And they are like a, I want to say a nine-person ensemble, but it might be more like 11. (laughs) So I'm just writing like a, a bigger piece for more instruments than I've ever worked with before. I did a kind of test version of that piece at the BAM Centre in July. What is the timeline for you when it comes to composition? Do you give yourself mm-hmm. a timeline? Is there a timeline? Um, I think it really depends on the project. Like scored the, the songs for Graptician, the Mandarins album, for the album release, and those songs have been written without scores and then I had to kind of go back and listen to the recordings and be like okay what's this they were really like heavily made from samples and so I had to kind of figure out what the songs were made of and how to divide some of those parts into other instruments and then I had to do it quite quickly because there was a show booked and rehearsals booked something like this uh, project coming up for like a larger chamber work. I've never done something like that before, so I'm not actually sure what the correct timeline is and how much time I should be giving to the the scoring process. Graphic scores can be very fast and quick and dirty, but traditional notation takes a lot longer and that's still all 
kind of new to me. I guess the process of translating a graphic score to traditional notation is new to me. So I, I don't have any answers in terms of how long things should take. Before you leave us, I've been looking at a couple of pieces of artwork as we've been conversing, and I'm just wondering what yeah. the black and white one, it looks like an iceberg and whether or not there's a story to it. So this is a collage that was made by my friend Caton, and it's like a boxing match or something that he cut out the ring and put this mountainscape in. And I just thought it was kind of beautiful because it was like this audience of people watching like climate change happen or something watching a glacier melt or an, an iceberg sink or something voyeuristic perspective on on like watching the world destroy itself <laughs> he just had this this show a couple of years ago at a at an art space and he was giving away the collages, and I just thought, thought it was like kind of a provocative, interesting idea, so I grabbed one. Should art always be provocative? I don't think that art always needs to be provocative, because I think that it also has a connection to the artist, and that the process of making is really cathartic for a lot of artists, and that that has its own power, that feeling good because you made something, because you see the work of your hands, is also like political and powerful in its own way, that you're a producer, not a consumer in that role. I think that that's also powerful. The work doesn't have to be political, because the, the act of making is. And are there messages that you're perceiving for the fourth album that you might like to communicate through that power that you have as an artist? I don't I don't know if I can say anything about the fourth album yet. <laughs> it doesn't there's not enough of it. I think I won't engage in the re recording process for a while because I feel like I just finished Mandarins and I still have a big box of records to sell. <laughs> Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me. Roxanne Nesbitt. To find their music, head to Graftishen on Bandcamp. A little over 15 minutes left of the show to go, and you may have picked up in my voice a bit of hay fever has struck big time, and so going scripted at this point would be the most wise thing to do but of course would i no i'm going unscripted i want to let you know about clio m that's c-l-i-o-e-m a brand new release dropped by them is an ep of significance called lace they say it's a set of four meditations on a steampunk world of musical mechanics and they've performed and composed it all themselves as a brilliant little addition to their musical output, which I'm sure is going to increase in the coming months and year. Uh, it's also a follow-up to their Gravity Wing project, which I may have spoken about previously. If I haven't, I'll speak about at length later, not in this episode. But uh, just letting you know that Clara M's Lace is out. I'll have details in the show notes regarding that. It's a four-track EP, which is out now thinking what I might do is just give you a bit of a taste right here of who'll be on our next episode.
I love Robert Hughes. I think that he was someone that made me really connect to art in a very sort of literary way because he was so verbose. Robert Hughes is, was an Australian art critic and he had a series called The Shock of the New and it was a, uh, a television series in which he explains uh, what is modern art, how, where does it come from, how does it affect the history of art and he was so talented at explaining art in a way which is accessible but also very deep and he, he was very cutting as well he was not afraid to say what he thought and uh, whether he liked uh, an artist's work or not and I think there's something terrific about that there's something flattering about honest criticism I mean there's something almost disrespectful about treating somebody as if they're not strong enough to hear your criticism and that's what I got from Robert Hughes and yeah, I love all his writing. I love all his his TV work, and I sort of, I kind of just like his his personality, his uh, his courage to just say exactly what he thinks, and to make it to make it funny as well. Emphasize that point that it it's respectful to treat somebody like they can take some criticism. Uh, if if they're an adult, they should be able to hear something that might offend them. I just see as uh, it's it's condescending to treat people as if they are somehow all inherently so vulnerable that they can't hear what you really think. As long as you're not trying to hurt them, there's a there's a difference, and it's it's very much it's always um, based on intention, and so we can't ever really tell. It doesn't mean I mean it seems like the safest thing to do would be just well, don't don't upset anybody, just be super nice all the time. But it's there's something fundamentally insulting about that, ironically enough. Poster boy Peter Drew, our feature guest next episode here on Radio Notes, talking about the nuances, street art and much more, including, of course, music. We'll get into that with him as well. Casting an eye on future episodes. Got a few in the can already, including one with Jamie Francina, who in fact does a mashup series of albums that have been out, including one with B.I.G. Flume and another one which looks at Taylor Swift, as well as one on Drake. He'll be our guest very soon. Also catching up with Orca in the next little while, recording a chat with someone who has the violin as their major instrument for uh, Soundscape Electronica. Very interesting music indeed. We'll be finding out more about that in a future episode of the show. Haven't done this for a little while. Let's go off the charts. And at number 50, we've got Fleetwood Mac and Rumours. Let's talk about new, though. The Pixies' brand new Beneath Yara is in at number 36. The Lumineers 3 is in at 23. Sampa the Great's The Return is new at 12. Corn's The Nothing in at number 5. The new rule is Free Time new at 3. And making up the top two, Taylor Swift's Lover is at the second position. And Hollywood's Bleeding by Post Malone sits pretty still at number one. Quick casting an eye on the singles of the Australian Recording Industry Association charts. And in at number five is Beautiful People, that Ed Sheeran tune. In at number four, brand new, is the Don't Call Me Angels, the Charlie Angels, Ariana Grande, Miley Cyrus, and Lana Del Rey number. 
you got some Sean Mendes in at number three, staying steady. Number two, also steady, is Post Malone Circles and Dance Monkey, still at number one by Tones and I. Both of the Taylor Swift singles have dropped about four positions on their respective chart position. A re-entry for Takeaway by the Chainsmokers in at number 50. Always curious who's making the Aria Vinyl album chart. Number one, Sampa the Great, uh, brand new, the return at number one. A re-entry makes its way to number two by Dope Lemon with Smooth Big Cat. You got the Lella Del Rey then being pushed from one to three. Queen's in at five. The Pixies' brand new album is in at seven with Nirvana's Unplugged record going from 13 to nine. Korn, brand new, their new one, The Nothing in at 10 and we've also got in the album charts remember how i was talking about the corpse flower the mike Patton, jean-claude vanier record well it's been released and in terms of vinyl makes its debut at number 14 tame impala's currents makes a re-entry in at 15 and bon Iver's i comma i down from 11 to 16 with jeff buckley going from 8 to 17 in the vinyl charts and some band called The Beatles, their album makes a re-entry at number 20. Oh, and Miles Davis from 17 to 19. Thanks for listening and thanks to our special guest, Roxanne Nisbet. Next episode, Peter Drew, The Poster Boy. RadioNotesPodcast.com for show notes and links. Web design there by Steve Davis. Theme music by Martin Kennedy and All India Radio. I'm Tammy Weller. John Murch is the producer and host based in Adelaide, South Australia.